0: Well, good afternoon. It's really nice to see you all. So I'll we'll just close this door. Um, the story of Samson in the Bible is possibly possibly one of the most famous stories. Um, maybe we should do a straw poll, actually. I'm, I'm conscious that... That might not be the case for everyone, but just uh, give us a little um, gesture of some kind if you've heard the story of Samson. Yeah, D- Samson Delilah. I- yeah, <laughs> Delilah. Tom Jones famously sang about Delilah. Um, uh, the original flawed hero, Samson is almost like a comic book character. He made me think of Desperate Dan. In the old, was that in the Dandy or the Beano? I can never remember which. Beano, was it? Dandy, okay. Superhuman in strength, tragic in weakness. Set apart for great things before he was even born. And yet his swashbuckling, womanising life ends with him blinded <coughs> and dying in a pagan temple. An amazing, amazing part of the Bible. Let's uh, turn, shall we, to Judges chapter 13. What we're going to do is read just the first chapter. In in the book of Judges, actually, there's more space given to Samson. Four whole chapters. Almost 20% of the whole book is given to this man, Samson. And yet... You could make a case for Samson achieving the least of any of the judges that we've been looking at. He's described here as a saviour of God's people before he was even born. And he certainly does achieve some great victories. But these victories all result from his weaknesses really with women that ultimately destroy him. Let's uh, read Judges chapter 13 is where we are. Sorry, I should have said that, shouldn't I, while I was talking, you could have been finding it. It's page 256, if you've got one of the church bibles, and if you haven't got one and you'd like one, my good friend Ian will give you one at the back there, if you let him know. He's, he's not like the manager of the bookstall or anything, he's just like sitting there at the back, minding his own business. <laughs> he, he's not like going to beat you up if you nick one, <laughs> Judges chapter 13. Uh, what we're going to do today, we've got quite a lot to get through today. I want to try and introduce Samson, but I want to also just walk through this chapter and think a little bit about his birth. So a little bit of a double whammy today. Hopefully we'll get through it. Let's hear God's word together. Again, it's an important word that, isn't it? Again, the Israelites did evil. In the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for forty years. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, Let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband, Manoah, was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here. The man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, Are you the one who talked to my wife? I am, he said. Solomon asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean, she must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we may honour you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with a grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces (laughs) to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We've seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands nor shown us all these things nor or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahane Dan between Zorah and Eshtiol. Amen. So read God's word. Shall we just uh, pause and I'm going to pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you so much for the Bible, your inspired word that you've given to us. We pray now that you would be with us as we look into it together. We pray that you would stir our hearts too by your spirit. We pray that you would help us to hear Your voice through the pages of your word speak to us, we pray, and help us to be obedient to you. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Saviour. Amen. Amen. (coughs) Samson's life was extraordinary, and yet many ways dismal. And it does beg the question, why does the author of the book of Judges spend so much time describing how such a promising life disintegrated so completely? Uh, Del Ralph Davis, um, in his commentary on the book of Judges, writes this, there is one danger I love his language here as well. Samson is such a rollicking, entertaining, break the mold kind of fellow that we might become preoccupied with him. And we mustn't allow our focus on the saviour God raises up to eclipse the God he saves. That's a way of saying that the point of Samson's story is not so much about what Samson is doing the point of these stories is actually about what God is doing and I think the reason the author devotes all of this space to Samson one of the reasons anyway is because at the very lowest darkest point when all the light seems to have been extinguished the candle has like been snuffed out Israel is at the lowest ebb. the grace of God Shines brightly in that very darkness. We're going to explore (coughs) Samson's uh, story over the next four weeks and we'll break it up by looking at his birth today and the last one obviously we'll think about his death and in between the two weeks in between we're going to think about his exploits in two parts all of the exploits that Samson does basically flow from his dysfunctional relationship with three different women, as we'll see. And we'll explore chapter 14 and 15 next week, and then a little bit into chapter 16 the following week before we look at his very tragic death at the end. But let, let me just take some time briefly today to give you a context for his life. First of all, very simply, the geography. You'll know if you were here last time that we've been looking at another judge called Jephthah, who amazingly appears in chapter 12, just before this one, because we're doing it in order. Um, at the beginning of chapter 10, you, you can flick back if you want, chapter 10, verse uh, around verse 7 or so. Well, it starts in verse 6, really. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They saved the Baals, the Asterisks, the God of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. They saved every single god except the true God. There's a massive long list there. All the different gods with little Gs. But because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer saved him, he became angry with them and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. That little phrase, the Philistines and the Ammonites, is interesting. If I, if I was to show you a little map here, the, this, this dark area is what became Israel. The Ammonites were on the east. The Philistines lived along the coast. And in chapter 10, 11 and 12, Jephthah, who lived more in the east, was basically the judge who defended Israel from the Ammonite attacks on the east. Samson, who possibly lived at the same time, he lives much further west, a little place called Esdrael. But he's really, he lives really right on the border of Israel and the Philistines. So there's a lot of things going on across the border. So Jephthah basically deals with the Ammonite threat. Samson deals with the Philistine threat. And Israel's like a little sandwich in in the middle being squeezed from both sides. And these two men, Jephthah and Samson, God raises them up to to protect his people who are being very foolish and suffering greatly because of their foolishness here. Um, So that, that gives you a little feel for where we are. What about the women? The story of Samson the narrator who tells the story tells the story of Samson from the perspective of his relationships with three women, if you discard his mum, four women if you include his mum, to start with, he had a wife, and it seems like his whole motivation was sexual attraction he He sees some kind of things she 's going to be my wife that that it 's his heart. you know he, he, he's attracted. And his marriage basically ends in tears and anger and recriminations. It escalates into lots of fighting. The next time we meet Samson, he's hooking up with a prostitute. And we see him seeking something, we don't quite know what, in a kind of detached sex that has no meaning. He's empty, and that ends in tears. And then finally, and probably most tragically, he meets Delilah, who he seems to love very much, the sadness being that she doesn't love him at all. So he goes from physical desire to empty, loveless sex to the disappointment then of unrequited love as Delilah uses him and lies to him and he ends up losing his strength having the very eyes that have lured him into bad relationships, poked out, and a tragic death. His relationships with women, really, are his downfall. And Samson ends up a shadow of what he could have been, perhaps should have been. And it seems like everything about his life is unrequited. He's looking for something that he just can't quite seem to find. He's not satisfied. He's constantly venting his anger on the Philistines because of the emptiness inside of himself, really. He's an angry, dissatisfied, discontented sort of individual. There's an enigma in Samson as well. Because out of all the judges... On record in this book, Samson was perhaps the one most blessed by God. We have a whole chapter here that sounds like the Gospels, it's like a nativity chapter. The angel Gabriel appears, you know, to Mary and the God. The exact same thing happens here to this childless couple. The angel comes, announces his birth, he's like the Saviour. But in the old testament. It says at the end of this chapter, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. This is a man who, before his birth, was called by God. And we have a whole chapter here that's devoted to his birth being announced by an angel. And yet, out of all the judges in the book of Judges, he achieves the least. The previous judge, Jephthah, was rejected by his family because his mum was a prostitute his early years were dysfunctional his brother sent him away he felt the injustice of like being ostracised Japheth could have blamed everyone else for his life being a mess but Samson couldn't loving devoted parents God called him before he was even born he, he, he can't like look to someone else to say yeah my background was a bit dysfunctional <laughs> uh, it, like the could it's not my fault, really. I, I mean, Mount Brigham's awful, abused and. Pfft. Samson was more blessed than any other judge, and yet he achieved nothing like some of the other judges did. And he's such an individualistic person. one writer notes that all our expectations of what a judge should be fall apart in Samson, the last of them. He never once led Israel in battle. He never united so much as one tribe. He never inspired anyone. He was just a lone ranger. All the conflicts he got into with the Philistines were basically down to his mistakes and then him losing his temper. He never had an army. The downward cycle in the book of Judges goes from national public issues to Samson's private adventures. It's, it's like... He has no eye at all on the big picture. He never thinks about God's glory. He's not thinking about Israel's security. He's just constantly obsessed with himself and women. (laughs) This is the judge of Israel. In the entire Bible, I'm not sure I can think of anyone in the Bible sadder. So blessed, so profoundly and he literally threw it all away because he couldn't keep his trousers on. That, that is Samson, I'm not sure. He's like some kind of comic character who smashes things up but can't quite control himself. Causing havoc everywhere he goes but never quite seeming to be able to grow up. Another writer suggests that this is a suspense-filled tale about squandered potential. Was there ever anyone more blessed and yet such an underachiever as Samson in these chapters? Absolutely squandered. Lastly, just by way of introduction, the parallel. The question is, where is God in all this? How can God call a man equip a man inspire a man by his spirit and plan for him to do great exploits and end up with such a spectacular failure where's God in all of that? has God like lost the plot? or is God unable? (laughs) I think part of the reason is that Samson as the last and saddest judge sums up the whole sorry experience of Israel as a nation. One writer says the story of Samson is one of wasted opportunities and disappointed hopes and in that it accurately reflects the conditions within the nation of Israel at that time. Israel was God's people too. In a way, when you think about it, as a nation, they too were miraculously born. They were precious to God. They were also, like Samson, set apart to be devoted to the Lord their God. Their great task was to show the rest of the world, all the surrounding nations, the glory and goodness and awesomeness of their God but they too had wandering eyes. For them, the grass always seemed to be greener on the other side. They were forever thinking it's not fair. It seems that in their own national life, God simply wasn't enough for them. They were always restless and discontented. And because God was not enough for them, they forsook him to pursue their satisfaction in all kinds of other desires so the last judge of Israel, Samson is like a picture of the nation of Israel it's exactly the same parallel story in fact he is perhaps a picture of all of us isn't he? Designed and created to be devoted to God. Destined for great things. Made in God's image. And yet aren't we too plagued with weakness and brokenness? One writer says, more than any previous agent of deliverance, Samson demonstrates that the divinely chosen leaders were actually part of Israel's problem rather than a lasting solution. Listen, this story teaches us, surely, that we need a better Israel. We need a stronger Samson. We need a saviour who doesn't just begin the process but who utterly delivers the whole program because he is more than awesome. The whole book of Judges hints at hope yet to dawn. It prepares us for the Saviour, Jesus, who would one day come, and as the youngsters around me sometimes say, poonet, one day a saviour would come he would smash it he would bring forgiveness and healing he would be able to clean people inspire people revive people refresh people restore people and rebuild people he would be able to take away people's guilt and shame and replace it with joy and peace He would bring with him the power to change. He wouldn't come and impose things from the outside. He would actually come and change people's hearts from the inside. Breaking all the bonds of destructive habits. Transforming wasted fruitless years into purposeful fruitful ones. Jesus is the one that the whole sorry story points towards... He is the greater Israel, the better Samson, the stronger Samson. I think that's why God included judges in the Bible. Because it shows that when things get really bad, God isn't finished. When things are low and dark and grim and bad, his grace is both beautiful and powerful. And isn't that what we need? The sadness of this story only serves to magnify the beauty of the story yet to unfold. We have the benefit of hindsight and we kind of know where this story is pointing to. Well, there's a little bit of um, background. (coughs) Let me try and show you four things then about the grace of God as we walk briefly through this nativity chapter. It's like a nativity scene, isn't it? Uh, Number one, four four things. That gives you a clue how long we're going to be, doesn't it? Numero one, grace that shines in the darkness. There we go. My slides aren't complicated today. Um, This chapter begins with a familiar sound. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. In verse 2, we're introduced to God beginning to do something. Well, we're introduced first of all to this man from Zorah named Manoah. And then in verse 3, God begins to intervene, an angel appears. I want to ask you a question at this point. What is missing? between verse 1 and verse 2 that you would expect to be there given all that we've seen in the book of Judges up to now this is the cycle the Israelites forsake the Lord he hands them over to their enemies they're miserable and oppressed 40 years it says here and then God intervenes what's missing eh? Pardon? Nobody asked for help. help. Did you notice that? Nobody asked for help. In the previous chapters, whenever things get bad, even if it takes years for them to, like, wallow in it, eventually someone has the gumption, the light seems to go on with someone, and they go, oh, man, maybe we should pray. It, It might take 20 years, but eventually someone goes, what about... Talking to God about it, maybe that might help. And they cry out to God. Here, there's nothing. The people don't—they don't even seem uncomfortable. They're, They're almost past being miserable. In the story of Gideon, in chapter six, there was a little bit of repentance. Oh God, we're really sorry. In Jephthah, they cry out not because they're sorry and repentant, but because they're miserable. God even says to them you're not saying sorry because you've done something wrong you're only saying sorry because you're fed up and you've got no food God still takes pity on them here it's like there's like it's like a ladder going down here they don't seem to care at all every stage is worse than the previous one until they hit rock bottom they've actually got completely used to things all their feeling and insight has gone They're actually blind to how far they've fallen. And they've stopped feeling it even anymore. This is a people who actually don't know how bad things have got. We'll get to it. But in chapter 15, when Samson begins to almost accidentally engage the Philistines, 3,000 Israelites come to find him where he's hiding in the cave to tie him up and hand him over to the Philistines and it's like these 3000 Israelites are just dumbfounded that anyone would dare to question the status quo and they say in verse 11 chapter 15 don't you realise the Philistines are rulers over us it's like it, things have got so bad that they, they, they're not even reacting to it, it's just become normal don't you realise the Philistines are in charge of us These are God's people. Listen, there's a massive warning here for us, isn't there? Surely. And the warning is this it is possible for us to be in life this kind of a sleep. It is possible in our lives for us to be so far from God that we actually don't know how bad things have got. Commenting on this passage, British pastor and author David Jackman wrote this. We need often to be reminded that our relationship with God is not static Every time we hear God's word, we either make ourselves more open and responsive by receiving and obeying it, or we harden our hearts in unbelief and disobedience. The point being, the way we respond to God's word, when we hear it, really matters. And if God speaks to us and we put our fingers in our ears... It is possible that next time we won't hear him quite the same. And it's possible that we can so harden our hearts that we become so increasingly deaf and blind and unfailing that we end up like this. It just becomes the new norm. Here are God's own precious special people completely and utterly in the dark and they don't even know it. But isn't there a massive encouragement here too that God is not finished with them? If God's grace depended on them asking for it they were done for. But actually the light shines in the darkness. This is a big deal The grace of God does not start in your heart, O man. The grace of God starts in His heart. It originates in Him. And it comes from Him and flows to us even when we don't deserve it. His grace is not dependent on us being good. It doesn't depend on us passing some test. This passage proves it. The Israelites didn't even know about things were they were asking for help. And yet God, who is moved with pity, he moves towards them even when they're not asking for it. Here is God intervening for their good when they least expect it and certainly don't deserve it. When we get to the place where we don't even know how far we've fallen and at that very point we find that God is still there acting and has acted on our behalf. The grace of God, it shines. in the, it, This is Israel's lowest point and God has not abandoned them. The way this chapter plays out is like a comedy episode. The, the dad in the story, is, he reminds me of Basil Fawlty, I don't know why. If you know Fawlty Towers, some of you won't know Fawlty Towers. It was a British sitcom, look it up on YouTube. Basil Fawlty is Manoa. He repeatedly tries to control the situation and repeatedly trips over his own feet doing that. But we also get possibly to meet the most awkward angel in the whole of the Bible. It's a great word, the word awkward, isn't it? My my nan was a Lancastrian woman. I loved her very dearly. And when we were young, she, she was a cheerful People say salt of the earth, you know. Like she, she was a lovely, cheerful woman. But when she said the word awkward, she always used to miss out the second W. So in her Lancashire dialect, you know, the neighbour down the road who'd done something stupid was an awkward neighbour. An awkward, an awkward. What, what kind of? You don't spell it like that. It's got another W in it. But anyway, when I when I think of an awkward angel, I'm, I'm in my mind. I hearing my nan say, "That's an awkward angel." She, she's there on my shoulder. This angel seems like the most uncooperative, evasive and orchid angel in the whole of the Bible. And then we have this dear woman, whose name we don't even know, who seems to display the most outrageous faith. So anyway, let, let's take the woman first. We'll just go through these characters. Uh The second thing I want you to say about God's grace is that it uses the most unlikely people. It seems very interesting to me that the author introduces the man, gives him a name, tells us his clan. And then he introduces the wife with no name and just says he had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. That would be a major social black mark in those days. Being childless was considered a sign that God was not blessing you and would cause embarrassment and even grief and anguish for many women and many couples. Why does the angel appear to this unnamed, apparently unblessed woman? Let me read to you a uh, quote here. There are times in Yahweh's history with his people that he refuses their help and he will not allow them to add their touch. Instead, he brings his salvation or relieves their distress in the face of impossible human odds. He displays his power. Precisely when and where they can contribute nothing. And all in order to lift our eyes to Himself so that we will have no illusions or delusions about where our help is found. That's why, in the days when the Philistines ruled, the angel of Yahweh paid a visit to a nameless, childless woman. I love that. In the days when the Philistines ruled, the angel of the Lord paid a visit to a nameless, childless woman. God is teaching us and them in a sense that he doesn't need any help. He is the one who intervenes. His grace shines in the darkness and uses the most unlikely people this is true all the way through the Bible isn't it all the way through the Bible God seems to pick the people we wouldn't pick and draw near to them and strengthen them and inspire them and then they further the story of redemption because of God intervening we'll come back to her faith at the end but just uh, let's have a little look at Basil Fawlty, the, the, the dad, the husband. Here, uh, this third point then is: grace, the grace of God, cannot be controlled. <coughs> did I did I put that? Next one. Ah yes. Sometimes my notes don't match the slides. I have to be careful. I'm not trying, especially when I can't say out there. The grace that can't be controlled. I, I do have mixed feelings about Manoa. <laughs> Is is he a little bit upset, do you think, that the angel appeared to his wife and not to him? Some writers do make a big deal of the fact that the man and the wife didn't know it was an angel at first because the angel appears in the form of a man, a human. So some strange so-called man of God appears to his wife and Gives her a message. She then goes to the husband and says, This man appeared to me, a man of God. He was awesome. I didn't have the heart to ask him his name. And the one's thinking, And who's this? Who's <laughs> this appearing to you in the fields, quite conveniently, when I'm not there? He was really awesome? It, it, you get a sense that this kind of, I don't know, maybe a little hint of something in the husband. And what an incredible message! The angel comes to the woman and says, you are sterile and childless, thanks for rubbing it in, but you will conceive and have a son. Here's the deal, no alcohol, no unclean food, no barber shops. He's a Nazarite. And just to un- underline the fact that he's a Nazarite, you're going to keep the same vow while you're pregnant as well. It goes back to Numbers chapter 6. It's a bit of an odd thing. This is Jewish history. God made provisions for his people that if someone wanted to devote themselves to God in a special way, they could take this vow. In Numbers chapter 6, it also includes not touching dead bodies, which is interesting when Samson kills a lion in the next chapter and finds honey in it. It seems like he doesn't, really take his Nazarite vow very seriously in his life. That's one of the problems. Basically, being a Nazarite was a sign that for a limited period, my life is God's property. I am devoted to serving God. And so so someone might become a Nazarite for six weeks or for six months or for a year. In Samson's case, the angel comes and said, he's a Nazarite for life. He is to be set apart for God, from before He's even conceived, and I suppose the long hair was a sign of someone who is keeping themselves utterly religiously clean. And the author is clever in the narrative that this Nazareth thing is actually repeated three times. I don't know if you noticed that. So we, we as readers get to hear the same thing three times because the angel appears to the woman and says it. Then she goes and gets a husband and the angel of the Lord repeats it. And then later on it's repeated again. Oh, oh, sorry, the woman repeats it to her husband before the angel comes back. So you actually hear the same thing three times. So the authors want us to know this is a special child. And I suppose as we get to the end of chapter 13, the question we're thinking is, Oh, is he good? is he a good Nazarite? Does he keep his vow? Does he does he deliver Israel? Do the Philistines get smashed? The, the author's kind of tearing up the story by repeating this idea of him being devoted to God. Anyway, the dad Manoah, in verse eight, prays, "Oh God, please send the man again to us. I want to see how this awesome person who's appeared to my wife." And he, he seems to want to know more details. His question about how to bring the boy up is probably quite natural. I, I suppose if you were a parent and you knew in advance that your child was going to be like a future prime minister, it probably would affect your parenting. <coughs> While they were little, you'd probably be you know, thinking about how they're educated and how they live. So I suppose he's thinking, you know, we want to know what, what, what's the gig, what's the rules. Somehow, I I can't escape thinking that he's trying to gain control of the situation. And that sense is increased because he prays, Oh God, send the man again. And when the angel comes, the orchid angel, the angel decides to appear to the woman, and the man's not there. It's almost like the angel's trying to rub his nose in it and make a point. You're not in control, mate. God's in control. So the wife runs to get the husband and it's, there's like a little power struggle going on here I think between this strange angel and, and, and the man trying to gain control. And when he comes, to the, the, the man of God waits there, the angel, and the man says, are you the man who talked to my wife? Twice. <laughs> I did not say that, I did that he just seems a little bit cute, And the angel in the Hebrew replies with one word that basically means, yep, it was me. Tis I, I am. So the angel is very cute with him as well. And then in verse 12, just look with me. Manoah then tries a different tack and tries to treat the angel like an old friend. When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule? for the boy's life and work. This is the second time he's kind of, I don't know, he's trying a different tack. And the angel just repeats the Nazarite thing. Just do everything I said to your wife already. I'm not giving you anything new. Basil, you've, you've already heard it from your wife twice now. Just do what I told your wife to do. And then he says... Why don't you stay for tea? <laughs> you, you, you can see the comedy going. It's like he's wanting to be in charge. Do you get that? He's wanting to, like, he wants to be in control. Please stay for tea. And the angel says, Even if I stay for tea, I'm not having any of your food. <laughs> If you want to make a sacrifice, sacrifice it to God. And that, that is a real insult. And this is a culture that prides itself on hospitality. To eat with someone is to be friends with someone. He's trying to cozy up to the angel and say, "Well, our mates, aren't we? Why don't you stay for tea? We'll kill the fatted calf, and or young goat in this case. And the angel says, I don't want any of your food. What I want is for you to worship God. And it's almost like the angel saying, you are not in a good place, mate. You you are not close to God. You're you're controlling, almost trying to manipulate God to serve you. He's got everything back to front. He's wanting to receive God's grace, but he only wants it on his terms. later the man asks the angel what's your name there's a few people in the Bible who ask God that directly <coughs> Jacob Genesis, Moses and Exodus what is your name so that we may honour you when your word comes true and the angel gives this enigmatic reply why do you ask my name it is beyond understanding that literally means it is too wonderful for you to comprehend it's very relevant I think to us the point here in this chapter seems to be that Manoah has enough information to go on and the angel is saying to both of them Just go and do what God is telling you to do. Stop asking questions. Stop prying into stuff as if you were the one in charge. I'm not playing these kind of games with you. If this is going to happen, which it will, it will be on his terms, not on your terms. I think often, you know, in the secret places of our own hearts... It is all too easy for us to be thinking, I would live for God if. You can fill in your own blank there. While all the while God is saying to us, "That's that's not the way things work. God doesn't necessarily have to tell us everything, He doesn't really need to work to our diaries. He doesn't need our advice or consent. But what he does desire is the trust and obedience of our hearts. Do you know, often in life, I think we can be guilty of waking, making things way more complicated than they actually are by asking questions that God may never answer. When he's already revealed himself to us and given us enough. The grace of God has to work on his terms and never works on our terms. We can't push God around. Grace of God shines in the darkness. It uses the most unlikely people but it is not a grace that we can control. Lastly, a grace that is beyond our imagination. The next part of the narrative is very like what happened to Gideon in chapter 6, if you hear then, The angel says that his name is wonderful, it's beyond understanding. And at the end of verse 19, uh, the author says that God did something amazing. Literally, the Lord did a wonderful thing. <laughs> the Lord did a wonderful thing while Manoah and his wife watched. And as the fire blazed, the angel ascends upward in the flame and disappears from their view, and it suddenly dawns on Manoah and his wife that they have actually been in the presence of God. Some commentators call this a theophany, which means an appearance of God in human form often the Bible talks about the angel of the Lord and then it's talking about God himself speaking. This happened in Abraham's life. It suddenly dawns on Manoah that they've been in the presence of God. The name that was too wonderful to explain, it is beyond you. I just want to make a brief point here that this is... I think an important perspective for us to rediscover we we are not god we can know him but we can't know everything and there is always something when we think about god of awe and mystery I I think as Christian believers, we can so often be overconfident that we understand God's ways and will in our lives. Sometimes we're very confident in telling our friends, oh yes, I know what God's doing in your life at the moment. We're we're very confident, as as if we understand what God is doing. Being honest, I think the truth can be often that we find ourselves being more baffled by him than actually understanding him One of the great religious questions in human history is whether God is near or far away. I did that the wrong way around, didn't I? Whether God is near or far away. Some people in history have expressed the view that God is so big, so infinite, so holy, so different, that it's impossible to really know him. On the other hand, in contrast to that, in modern times, the church seems often to go to the opposite extreme and portray Jesus as your best pal. God is nice and warm and comfortable and will basically do anything you want and he'll let you do anything you want. How do passages like that, like this, speak into that question? Is God far away or is he near? The truth of this passage is that is isn't both true? The truth is that God is both awesome, he is beyond, his name is beyond our understanding. His grace is beyond our imagination. And yet he is near. I want to say to you friends that we need a God who is not like us, not someone who is like us. We need a God who is not like us and yet one who reveals himself to us. We need a God who is bigger than us and beyond us, and yet one who comes near to us in our weakness and in our sin. We need a God who isn't just a bizarre figment of our imagination, but one who reveals to us what we need to know about Him. And I want to suggest to you that there should be, in our lives and in our church, A deep sense of awe and reverence for such a God. Alongside a note of love and friendship too. Because this God has drawn near to us in the person of his son. The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember Jesus had a conversation with his disciples the night before he was crucified. And I think it was Philip who said to Jesus, um, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Was it Philip who said, "How, how, how can we know the way? How do we know the way? Jesus very famously said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think it was Philip who went on to say, Lord, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. We can see that you love him. Show us the Father and that'll be enough. That's all we want. And Jesus said, Philip, don't don't you know me? Even after I've been with you such a long time, he who has seen me has seen the Father. This is the God who is awesome, who has come near Revealing himself in the most tenderest, compassionate terms. As we draw to a close, I love the logic of Manoah's wife. At the end, as they lie on the floor with their faces in the dust, terrified. It's the wife who expresses a great truth. No one let no one tell you that the Bible is anti women. Often in the Bible, the women are the ones who get it before the men do. And people say the Bible, it's all anti women. This woman, what a great, astonishing faith she has. She says to her husband, If God had meant to kill us, he wouldn't have done all this, would he? How could we be going to die when God just told us we're gonna have a baby? We're going to at least live that long. That takes nine months, doesn't it? It's like, I, if I could paraphrase what this wife says to her husband, she's saying to her husband, look at us, Manoah, we're a mess. Look around you in the nation. The nation's a mess. This is the darkest moment in our nation's history. But God is amazing, isn't he? He came and knocked at our door he loves us and here he is intervening for our good and you're saying he's going to kill us maybe this is a word that you need to hear this afternoon if God was intending to reject you abandon you condemn you he would not have done all this would he would he have revealed his will and ways in his word for you to hear would he have not would he have sent a savior greater than samson would he have sent his son jesus to die in shame to take away your guilt shame would he have brought you here to this place to even hear these amazing truths? He may not have explained everything to you. He may not explain everything to you. But he's given you everything you need to know him. I love the logic of this woman. If God had meant to kill us, he wouldn't have done all this. His grace shines in the darkness. It uses the most unlikely people. It is always on his terms, not ours. And it is beyond your imagination. This afternoon, I want to call you to look away from yourself and put your trust in the God who is both awesome and near. Do not harden your heart and miss the grace of God by trusting in something else come with me and let us today resolve afresh all of us to turn from ourselves and to him for Christ's sake and Samson is born the Spirit of God is upon him. Will he keep his vow? Will he deliver Israel from the Philistines? I have to come back next week.